Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. Go ahead and have a seat. If you have a Bible close by, you can turn to Philemon, and we also have extra Bibles on the table back here. Philemon, toward the back of your Bible there, and we're reading verses 8 through 18 this morning. Philemon, verses 8 through 18. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order to you, to do what I what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to have keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you would not, you would do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Thank you there, Pastor Tyler. Uh, no, no, that's all right, good. Hey, before I get started this morning, uh, I just want to call our attention um, to the Binnaker family. They're seated there. Uh, you can see them in the corner, there they are. There you go. Karen, James, Ryan, and Brendan. Where did he go back to the... To get coffee, okay, all right. Like a good Coast Guardsman, right? Coffee. Anyway, this is their last Sunday with us. Uh, like many who come to us uh, through military service, uh, they have now completed their Alaska service, and you're moving on to the East Coast, I understand. Well, we want to say we love you. It's been a delight getting to know you. And uh, you're not leaving. We're sending and you are now officially missionaries from Community Covenant Church. And we pray and we hope that you take all that the Lord has given you during your time here. And now in your new place of service, that the Lord would allow that just to overflow into the lives of others. And that you would bless them uh, in Jesus' name, even as you have blessed us. 
So just thank you so very, very much. We miss you already. And you know that this is home when you're away from home, wherever your home is in the military, right? All right, thank you so much. And just, uh, that's not goodbye. It's see you later, okay? All right, okay. I had a friend of mine, um, and he said, Todd, ministry is a series of uh, um, hellos and goodbyes. And that is so very, very true. Uh, hey, listen, we are in our second week in our study in the book of Philemon. Just by way of review, uh, Philemon is one of what is known as the prison epistles or letters. Paul wrote this letter uh, while under house arrest uh, in Rome in his first imprisonment. And uh, he not only wrote this letter, he wrote three others. Uh, he wrote um, the letter to the Ephesians, the Philippians, right? Um, Colossians, and Philemon. And it's interesting that as he writes uh, to Philemon, Philemon is a fairly prominent member of the community there in Colossae. And uh, it's believed that both the letter to the Colossians and Philemon were not only written at the same time, uh, but were sent uh, there uh, to Philemon and to the church at Colossae. And uh, Philemon and his wife and his son, they hosted uh, a house church there in Colossae. And uh, we might recall last week I had shared with you that uh, that is where followers of Christ met in homes basically until the third century. It wasn't until about then that um, worship and meeting together moved from homes into buildings that we uh, practice today. Uh, many, many churches meet in buildings. Some still meet in homes. But that practice of meeting in homes uh, was at the very beginning. Uh, Philemon uh, was a well-to-do person there in Colossae. He hosted a church in his home. And like many prominent people, uh, he had house servants or slaves uh, that uh, were a part of the family but played a specific role of serving the family in, in various ways. And the occasion of this uh, writing, Paul is writing uh, to Philemon because there's a runaway servant or slave. His name is uh, Onesimus. And Onesimus fled uh, from Philemon's home, and it wasn't uncommon in those days uh, for a runaway slave to, to go to a major metropolitan area where they could blend in and uh, not be seen or known uh, as a, a slave who's run away, and they can uh, hopefully start a new life there. And uh, it's believed that he ran away to Rome. Well, Coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, Paul's under house arrest. It's around 60 to 62 A.D. And Philemon goes to Rome, and we're not quite sure how he came across Paul. Uh, Onesimus, not Philemon. Onesimus. It's not quite sure how he came across Paul, but we know that he did. And uh, Paul took in Onesimus, 
under Paul's ministry, Onesimus became a follower of, of Christ. And this letter is an appeal. And it's written to Philemon because Paul is going to send Onesimus back to Colossae, to Philemon's home. And he is appealing on behalf of Onesimus for Philemon not only to receive him back, but to do so without punishment and to receive him back not as a house servant or as a runaway slave that's returned, but to receive him back as a brother in Christ and fellow servant of the Lord. Now you have to understand uh, how um, revolutionary this letter is. Because at this time in the Roman Empire, there were about 120 million citizens or subjects, people living in the empire, right? And about 60 million or nearly half of them were slaves. Okay? And so it behooved a slave owner and it behooved the empire to make sure that there were strict punishments and regulations regarding slaves and especially those who were disobedient, those who had run away, those uh, who had failed um, to serve well. And so it wasn't uncommon in the empire when a runaway slave was found, was returned, or came back to their place of service, it was not uncommon uh, for them to be uh, experience severe punishment, okay? really severe punishment. And in some cases, uh, even the penalty of death. And you have to understand, because in that culture, in order to keep half of the population under control, there needed to be very strict guidelines and rules and regulations, okay? So here Paul is, and he's writing to Philemon, and this letter is basically breaking every cultural barrier or established rule or regulation regarding the conduct uh, of slaves and the return of a runaway slave. Does that make sense? Uh, And some might say, well, Paul was a follower of Christ, and nowhere in this letter does he speak against slavery, right? Uh, Some say he must have been in favor of that institution or accepted it. No, not really. In fact, as we go through this letter, you'll see that, that Paul's understanding of the gospel was that the gospel broke down Uh, every barrier that existed between people, ethnically, um, gender-wise, socially, um, in all ways, Christ transcends cultural barriers and people who come to Christ are equals in Christ. And so in this letter, Paul is appealing to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus and, and what he's doing is saying, not only receive him back, but receive him back as a brother in Christ. And so, within the Christian faith, the institution of slavery would be eroded from the inside out. As people who are following Jesus Christ, they realign 
their relationships with one another to be in alignment with God's view of people and their value and their worth. Does that make sense? And so this letter really is a letter that's written uh, that comes against the institution of slavery on the basis that all people in Christ are equal. And Philemon is to set an example by receiving him back without punishment, not as a house servant or a slave, but as an equal. Does it make sense? Well, in the first seven verses last week, you might recall, we talked about the character of one who forgives. Because a key theme to this letter is forgiveness. Paul appealing to Philemon to forgive Onesimus. And he's making an appeal for a runaway slave ostensibly one who does not deserve forgiveness, but deserves the the full force of the law if you're a secular Roman. But if you're a Christian, you see this letter as a beautiful picture of what God did for us in Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8, right? Why we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God was at work through Him reconciling the world to Himself. And so just as we see the reconciling work of Christ on our behalf, so in this letter we see that pictured in Paul and his appeal for there to be reconciliation and for Onesimus to receive what in a secular, non-biblical sense, he didn't deserve. And that's grace and mercy. And so we see this theme in this letter. And that grace and that mercy expressed in forgiveness. And so it's a beautiful picture of what God has done for us through Christ, giving us the forgiveness that we did not deserve. That according to the full force of the law, we would deserve, we would deserve what? Death. But instead, we have a free gift. Forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Through Jesus Christ. So that's that's what we see here. And the character of one who forgives, as Paul reminds, or is going to remind Philemon of, beginning in the first seven verses that we went over last week, is the character of one who forgives is a character in which love is in the forefront. It's present. It's expressed. It's active. And that love is generated from faith. Faith in God through Jesus Christ. And so you see that character of love and you see it grounded in a foundation of faith in Christ. And you see it expressed through acts of reconciliation and forgiveness. And you remember last week I I talked about 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where where Paul says that God has given us a ministry of reconciliation, that God's at work, right? Through us, reconciling others to Himself. And that's a beautiful picture. And so the character of one who forgives is a character 
of love. And that love is the first fruit of the Spirit. And as we are filled with the Spirit of God, that love is evident in and through our lives. And it's expressed, as we see here, uh, through forgiveness, through a desire to reconcile with those, even those who ostensibly don't deserve it. Okay? And so we get into this second part of the letter um, today, verses 8 through 18. And, and this is really the, the, the meat of Paul's appeal. And again, uh, he is pleading Onesimus' case, he's pleading the case to Philemon, the same way that Christ pleads our case to God the Father, right? There's one intermediary, one representative, one person who can intercede on our behalf before the Father, and that's Jesus Christ. And we see Paul modeling that, that Christ-likeness in his appeal, and he's going to be appealing here. He's appealing on the basis of Christ and Christ's love and what Christ did for us. Uh, and so it's a powerful picture of uh, Christ pleading our case before the Father as Paul pleads Onesimus' case before Philemon. Um, there was a, a regulation in Rome at this time and it was called by hearth or by altar. And here's how it worked. If a slave had run away from their master or from their place of work, there was a um, regulation that allowed them to take shelter at a place where there was an altar, a place of worship, or in a home where the hearth, if you will, was the altar in the home. And the purpose was it was a safe place for the homeowner to... Um, work with the slave and to convince them to return to their master. And during that time, the slave owner would write a letter, often to the master, or if they knew them personally, make an appeal in person on behalf of the slave who's sheltered in the home, right, at the hearth of the altar, imploring the master to take them back with minimal penalty or punishment, Right? ostensibly to forgive them and receive them back, and to give the slave time uh, to prepare themselves to go back. So this is a, a little-known uh, exception or regulation in the Roman Empire. And so here we see Onesimus with Paul under house arrest, right? And Paul is going to do exactly what this law or regulation allows him to do, Okay? Now, it's interesting, in the empire, if the slave decided not to go back, then it was the, um, it was the, uh, the person, the homeowner's responsibility to then put the slave up for auction, to sell them to somebody else, take the money and give it back to the original owner whom they had run away from. And that's what would happen in case the slave wouldn't go back. And here in this, we see Paul in our verses today, literally saying, hey, listen, 
Whatever he stole from you, whatever he cost you, you put it on my account. So not only am I going to return him, not only is he going to go back to you, but I'm going to pay. I'm not going to sell him and give you the money for his value. I'm going to pay. You can put it on my account, whatever he's cost you. Okay? So Paul does one better. And uh, that's really the context of what's happening here in this appeal. Okay? Now, this week, we um, have started the, the second part of this study in Philemon. And, and last week was the character of one who loves. This week is the action, excuse me, the character of one who forgives. This week is the actions of one who forgives. And uh, we're going to, this is a two-parter, okay? Because it's one thing for us to read in Scripture. It's one thing for us to study uh, the actions of Paul and, of course, of, of Philemon with this issue of forgiveness with this runaway slave Onesimus. And, of course, what we learn, we want to apply to our own lives. And, and that's valuable, and, and we want to study this in detail. We're going to go into more verse-by-verse verse next week. But an opportunity uh, came about this week for you to hear a real-life story today of a person who chose to forgive. Chose to forgive someone who had done damage or harm to them. Someone who ostensibly, uh, according to the law, deserved punishment. The full force of the law. And yet this person, because of the character of love, grounded in their faith in Jesus Christ, chose to make an appeal on behalf of the one who had committed the offense. And uh, what an opportunity for us to, to hear that from one of our own family members. So next week we're going to go into these verses in detail. You understand the theme. But today you're going to hear a real life example of the character of one who forgives and the actions of one who forgives. So I'm going to ask Larry Severson. Larry, where are you if you'd come up? Get us situated here, Larry. I got to get the mic. This is just in case I need it. I might need it. All right, we both we both might need it. Okay, so. Uh, Many of you know Larry. Larry's a longtime member of Community Covenant Church. Uh, and uh, over the time that I've been here, I've grown to love and appreciate this man um, because of Christ in him. And uh, Larry, in 2016, you and your wife, Karen, began an exciting new journey called retirement. All right? uh, but that journey... Um, turned out quite different uh, than how you had expected. In fact, uh, almost two years, it'll be two years in August, something happened, an event occurred that dramatically um, changed your plans in the course of your life. Would you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yes, as um, Todd said, and as most of you know, that uh, we retired and um, we sold our house in Eagle River and embarked on a new adventure. And my wife had a desire that she wanted to full-time RV for a while. And so we bought a motorhome and we sold everything, donated the rest, all the way down to an RV with nothing in storage. And um, so we left Alaska in July, just two years ago. And we drove down to the RV where it was that we had bought a few months earlier. It was in Colorado at my kid's place. And uh, we got down there and uh, we're just starting to move into it. All that we had was a few things that we took in our pickup truck to put into the RV and start to get settled into it. We arrived just before a weekend and um, so we went camping with my kids and my grandkids and while we were camping we found a great raspberry patch that we decided to come back to the next weekend. So we did. The next weekend we went um, back. We did two things. We, we celebrated a 95th birthday of a father of my my kids uh, friends and then we went picking raspberries and we had extended family there so there were two vehicles it was on the way home from that trip that uh, we were uh, nearing my kids home and they were in a vehicle in front of us and uh, there was another vehicle coming down a side road and both of us were traveling 55, 60 miles an hour. And uh, he was distracted and ran through a stop sign and T-boned us. And the result is we were all injured and my wife was killed. Since that event, uh, you and your family have uh, been on a journey of forgiveness. How has that unfolded? Well, I'm going to go back to shortly after when um, uh, I was in a hospital, in intensive care in one hospital, and my wife was transferred to a trauma hospital in Denver. My daughter flew on the flight on the medevac to Denver with her and was with her while my son-in-law stayed with me. And... Um, I was released early from ICU so I could go be with my wife. And um, my daughter uh, knew that the young man who hit us was also transferred to that same trauma hospital. I didn't know that. And when I got there, I was. Um, with my wife and my daughter and my son flew in and we were all together and um, my daughter um, moved towards the young man that hit us and she said 
I just want you to know that I forgive you. And if mom could speak, she would want you to know that she would forgive you too. Mm. And then she left. And it was, I don't know if it was the same day or the next day, that my son came into the room that I was with, was Karen. And um, he had something that was heavy on his heart. And he asked if my son-in-law was there. He was going to talk to him. And he had just stepped out. So he said, I'll just tell you, Dad. And um, he said he was in the ICU waiting room. And um, he was watching the Olympic basketball games. And a group of people came in and sat down and started talking behind him. And he realized that they were talking about the accident. And he turned around and introduced himself. And when he introduced himself, um, they began to talk. And my son came and got me and my son-in-law. And we went to meet them. And they had a lot of questions about the accident because they didn't know much either. And all I could tell them is what I knew. And so we talked and we cried. And then we took hands and we prayed together. And when I look at my kids... Dad couldn't be more proud of his kids than to see the two of them reaching out to love others in the midst of their own agony and pain. That one touched me very deeply. Then it was a few months later that um, I got a call from the district attorney's office in Colorado because the state of Colorado was pressing criminal charges against this young man. And um, they asked if I wanted to write a victim impact statement. And I said I would. And so eight months after the accident, I wrote a victim impact statement. And they had questions to answer. And I answered some of those questions and described the impact of the accident on myself and my family. And at the end of that, I said that I wanted Clark to also know that I forgive him. And I made one request. I said, I would like to speak to Clark personally and address him personally. And... Um, there was a lot of maneuvering and motions filed by the defense attorney to try to prevent me from speaking. And um, that went on for many months. And uh, it was just recently, it was May 31st, just a few weeks ago, that um, I was granted the opportunity to um, address him address it personally in court with the one stipulation that I don't address him personally, but I address the court. And so I did that. And so your victim impact statement 
was an appeal to the court on behalf of Clark. Would you would you share that with us? Uh, you 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 allowed Lori and I to read that last Sunday, and it so touched us. And I have been thinking about it ever since. And uh, I just feel it would be um, a very powerful thing for you to read this to the congregation. Yes, I will read it. I want to preface it with something. Um, I know it's going to be hard for me to read. It's also going to be hard for you to listen to. And with that in mind, I want to say just a little bit about um, where I'm at. I want you to know that I'm doing well. I've been very loved by many people. And my heart is settled, and I feel free inside, even though there's still lots of pain. But I'm enjoying life, I'm enjoying beauty, and I'm enjoying relationship with many people. And I feel very loved by God. And I want you to hear that before I read this, because it is difficult to read. This is what I read in court. I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak. It matters to me what happens as a result of the tragedy that we experienced. It matters to me how I deal with it, and it matters to me how others deal with it. With that in mind, I'd like to try to answer the question, What would help me the most in dealing with this? First of all, I would like Karen, my precious wife of over 45 years, to be known and remembered for the beautiful woman that she was. Secondly, I would like the trauma of what I experienced to be heard with a measure of understanding. And finally, I would like to suggest what I believe could be the best possible good that could come out of such a costly mistake. So first of all, I would like to give you a very small glimpse into the life of a very beautiful woman. As you can see from this picture, Karen was beautiful. Yet her real beauty was not what you see. It was what she was on the inside. Anyone who knew her would describe her as a gentle and loving woman who would light up a room as she entered simply by her presence. She was an extraordinary woman. But no one knew her gentle love more than I did, for I was married to her for over 45 years. We started off as high school sweethearts. Our relationship grew into something very special. And I'm sharing a couple pictures that give a glimpse into our relationship. 
And I'd like you to notice the eyes. We enjoyed each other's presence and tackled life's challenges together as we both grew. In the past few years of our marriage, Karen often told me that she could describe our relationship with just one word, fun. So when we retired two years ago and sold our house in Alaska to downsize to a motorhome, we were embarking on a future of more adventure and connection. One of the reasons we were doing it was to spend more time with our grandkids. We arrived in Colorado on July 25th. 2016, to start moving into the motorhome. The first weekend, we went camping with our kids and grandkids. While camping, we found a great raspberry patch. So the next weekend, we went back to pick raspberries in the mountains. It was August 6th. And we were on our way home from picking raspberries when the accident happened that threw my whole world upside down. My wife let out a scream as we realized that a large white truck was not slowing down for a stop sign. The scream was only half a scream as it was cut short by the violent impact. When everything stopped, the Jeep was on its side in the ditch of the road that the white truck was traveling, a significant distance from the road we were traveling on. The first thing I realized that my wife's lifeless body was hanging over me from her seatbelt and shoulder harness as the blood was flowing out of her head on me. I quietly called her name with no response. I was aware that I had two hurting and traumatized kids in the back seat and I didn't want to alarm them more than they already were. Little Willa started screaming out in fear and pain, and I couldn't even turn enough to see her, let alone help her. Lily, my granddaughter, was sitting behind me and had a clear view of her grandma's lifeless body. She called out in a clear and strong voice and said, Grandpa, are you okay? It hurt that I couldn't reassure her, as I knew I wasn't. Somehow I managed to get my cell phone out of my pocket and call my daughter, who was driving home from the raspberry patch, with her husband, son, and mother-in-law. They were a few miles ahead of us. I don't remember all that I said, but I remember telling Heather that we were just in a terrible car accident and I didn't know if Mom was alive. I managed to undo my seatbelt and crawl out the window. My kids and grandson were some of the first on the scene and they witnessed a terrible scene that produced its own trauma for them. When my daughter arrived, she promptly squatted down and held my hand as I sobbed for my wife who I knew wasn't going to live. After what seemed to be a very long time, we were eventually transferred by ambulance to the hospital. My wife was flown to the trauma hospital in Lakewood. 
while I remained in the Alamosa Hospital. After two days in ICU, I was released early so I could go to Denver to be with my wife. She died of her injuries nine days after the accident. She never regained consciousness. The pain was excruciating as I held her hand and watched her take her last breath. The heartache is beyond what most people can comprehend. It was at the trauma hospital that I met Clark's mom, who is here today, and several of her friends. I didn't know until then that Clark was flown to the same trauma hospital as Karen was. We talked, cried, and held hands as we prayed together. A few days later, Karen died. It is now a few days shy of being one year and ten months since the accident. I still have many tears. Karen and I were very close and enjoyed being together. And now she is gone, never to return. We thought that we would have many more years together as we were very active and healthy. Healing from this trauma has been long and slow. I have often said that this is not like a broken bone that you heal from. It's more like an amputation that you learn to live with. Yes, there is healing after an amputation, but the loss of a precious part of you is always gone and will never return. I have known that I must fully face the pain of my loss. It can be tempting to jump into distractions meant to avoid the pain on one side or enter self-pity on the other side. But my path has been clear from the beginning. I must be willing to feel the pain and face the impact of my loss. Otherwise, my own heart would become a little more deadened and perhaps a little more hardened. Healing from this trauma requires that I face the darkness of the loss on the one hand, while seeking to continue to live life with gratitude and vitality on the other hand. It's not easy. I am blessed to have a very caring community and family who love me and have walked this painful journey with me. I hope Clark can experience that as well. I am grateful to see his mom support him, and I hope that he has extended community that is willing to come along beside of him as well. The mistake of failing to stop for a stop sign has been a costly one for me and for my family. I would like to suggest what I believe could be the best possible good that could come out of such a costly mistake. I desire good for each of the victims of this accident, and I desire good for Clark as well. So I'd like to try to explain what I mean by this. I have often thought of what it would be like if I were the one who failed to stop at the stop sign. It could have been me. I think that probably every one of us in this room has probably run through a stop sign at some point in their life. I have. I've been distracted by conversation to the point where I missed seeing a stop sign and didn't even know it until someone pointed it out to me. It didn't have tragic and costly consequences. It could have. 
So what if I was the one who ran a stop sign and caused devastating and painful consequences in the lives of many? What would be the best possible response from me after such a costly mistake? Well, I'll tell you what it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be a response that minimized it. If I viewed it simply as a traffic violation that the state is trying to pin on me, my heart would be uncaring, and worse, it would be hard and calloused. I would only be looking to avoid consequences, and as a result, I would not be free to care about others and love others well. The damage of the accident would only increase and do more damage to my own heart and to those who crossed my path. So if I were the one who made the mistake, what would be a response by me that could lead to healing, both for the victims and for my own heart? It would be to fully face the impact of what my mistake cost others, to let my heart grieve for the loss and to care for the victims and desire to do whatever I could to help them heal. Then good could come out of tragedy. The pain and the loss will remain, but good could result. It is with that in mind that I have offered forgiveness to Clark. Forgiveness doesn't minimize. It actually places blame where blame belongs. It would be an insult to offer forgiveness to someone who hadn't done anything wrong. Instead, forgiveness recognizes the wrong and chooses to relinquish any revenge or payback for the wrong. Forgiveness gives a gift of grace to someone who has done something wrong. It offers care instead of payback. It is being willing to live with the cost and seek to love. I realize that Clark's brain injury has likely resulted in him losing a sense of himself. Consequently, it could be difficult for him to process complex emotions. So first of all, I hope that he can regain a sense of himself and begin to feel normal again. I hope that Clark can begin to feel things like sadness, heartache, and even depression. It would mean that he's beginning to be more normal once again. I also hope that he can experience joy, gladness, and peace once again. If he can experience those emotions and begin to understand what they mean, he can also begin to care about others, including the victims of his mistake. So my hope is that Clark will eventually be willing to look at what his mistake cost me and many others. And in doing so, that he will let his own heart care so that he can be free of hardness and the devastating kind of pain which will only increase his stress and slow his own healing. In contrast to a devastating kind of pain, an aching, caring heart will not increase stress it will reduce it. Seeing good come out of tragedy is the thing that would help me the most. So what is the ultimate good that can come from all of this? For Clark, it is for him to take ownership and responsibility for the mistake he made. That would open the door for him to begin to care about the victims and what this has cost them.
it would also open the door for Clark to begin to see a path of freedom for his own heart. For the rest of us, it means that we would all be willing to look deeper into our own hearts and see how we're handling our pain and loss. Is it a direction that leads to a harder, more calloused heart? Or is it a direction that frees our heart to love even in the midst of tremendous pain? The journey is painful and difficult, but worth the effort. I recognize that the things that I am hoping for are things that cannot be demanded or required from anyone. I am simply laying out my own desire with the hope that it will be heard and received. Thank you again, Judge Ruth, for the opportunity to speak. Thank you. And Larry, what was the outcome of... I was grateful that the judge heard me well. And she reiterated in her own words what I was seeking to communicate to Clark. And um, there were a lot of tears in the courtroom. I think just about everybody except the defense attorney. (laughs) (laughs) And then... After that, because of his Clark's injuries and um, him being incompetent to stand trial at the time because of his injuries, and it appeared that it would be some time before he could, um, she dismissed the case. And that was okay with me because that part didn't matter to me. What mattered to me was that I'd be able to communicate to him what I wanted him to hear. And I'll leave the results up to God. Yeah. Amen. Larry, um, forgiveness has been a journey. And I know there are some here today that um, may be struggling with forgiveness in their own life. Maybe there's been someone who's done harm to them. And maybe they're just stuck. If there was one word that you could give them, word of encouragement, what would you say to that person here who's listening? Well, I'd like to boil it down to two things that I'd like to be remembered. And I realize that there's much more to forgiveness than these two things. But um, if we can remember these two things um, and begin to walk them in our own lives, uh, we can start our own journey towards forgiveness. And first of all, you have to get in touch with what you want deep down in your heart. For me, I knew that I wanted to have a tender heart that could love. I wanted to be able to give love and to receive love. And um, I don't want a hardened, calloused heart. So I knew that that's what I want down deep. And it's often tempting to um, settle for desires that are less than those deeper desires. Desires like um, 
I want to protect myself from feeling, ever, ever feeling this kind of pain again. Or I want someone to pay for what they've done. Those are desires too, but they don't come from that deeper place that um, has a desire to love. They fall far short of that. And um, so that brings me to the second thing, and that's you must be willing to face the full impact of what the wrong has cost you. Um, For me, that meant that my heart is going to ache and I'm going to have a lot of tears. But to minimize the cost is to cheapen forgiveness. And uh, I think that every one of us has um, experienced times when um, the forgiveness that was offered to us was cheap. And it didn't have much impact. We hear words like, um, um, oh, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Yeah, I'll forgive you. But nothing of any substance happens. It's just the words. And um, the words lack power. We can use words of forgiveness without getting to the heart of forgiveness. And to get to the heart of forgiveness, we have to face the full impact of what it cost us. So what happens if I'm not willing to face the full impact of the cost? There's going to be a a wall of unforgiveness in my heart. It may be a little wall, or it may be a big wall. But there will be a wall. And my heart will be a little bit more hardened and a little bit more calloused. Mm. And I don't want that. Um, I want my heart to be free to love. Remember my kids? They loved well in the midst of their pain. And that's what I want to do. So I'm boiling it down to these two things to start thinking about in the process. You must get in touch with what you want in the deepest places of your heart. Because it's always going to take us to the heart of God and loving people well. And um, isn't what that what God is calling us to? Yeah. Yeah. He calls us to love others and to love them deeply. Mm-hmm. And secondly, you must be willing to face the full cost the impact of whatever wrong that you've experienced. Then your heart can be free to offer forgiveness. It isn't cheap. So, enter the journey with me. Hmm. We've all been wronged by others, and we've all wronged others. And God extends to us forgiveness. It cost him dearly. And he has the heart of the deepest, unfailing love that there is. So, thanks. So, Larry, thank you for sharing your journey. Thank you for modeling that love. Um, The character, right, of one who forgives. At the heart of that is love. And thank you for that. Uh, As the Lack family comes up, and we're going to take our offering... um, 
I'm going to invite you not only this morning to give your financial gift and offer that, but I want you to offer your hearts, yourselves, that place where you may be stuck in unforgiveness. And if you would offer that to the Lord today, as that basket goes by symbolically, place whatever it is in that basket and give it to the Lord and ask the Lord to help you move forward in your journey of forgiveness. So let's pray together. Can we do that? Father, as we prepare for our offering today, we want to give you um, a financial offering. Lord, we ask that you would use it to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Father, we long for others to know the joy of salvation in Christ Jesus. But Father, central to understanding that is to really understand the cost of our sin. Lord, what it cost you, the life of your very Son. And Father, you have given us such a priceless forgiveness. Who are we to withhold that which you've given us to others? And so today, Father, we ask that you would help move us along in our journeys of forgiveness. Wherever that pain is, wherever that offense is, wherever that brokenness is, that you would help us to love. Open our hearts that the life of Christ might be richer or fuller in us and expressed through our actions towards others. Father, we thank you for Larry. We thank you, Lord, that he has chosen not to waste his sorrow, but you, Lord, in a way that only you can have redeemed it. Father, you have brought good out of something tragic that seemed so hopeless. Yet, Lord, where you are, there is hope. Father, we pray and we ask in the name of Jesus that you would continue your work of healing in our brother Larry's heart and life. Lord, that the joy that he is experiencing now would continue, Lord, as that is joy that is hard won, but it is joy that is found only in the heart of one who surrendered his pain to you. And so, Father, we offer Larry to you, and we offer ourselves to you. Will you lead us in the way of Christ, in the way of forgiveness? Now receive this offering. We ask your blessing upon it and those who give it to the honor and glory of your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Larry.